What I'm about to say is going to be pretty controversial, and I hope you can just love me through it. Are you ready? Here goes. I hate Halloween. I love the candy, and well, pretty much just the candy. Sorry to all my Halloween-obsessed listeners, but it's just not my thing. I hope we can still be friends. I decided to suck it up, though, and plan something a little spooky for episode 20, which, if you're listening in real time, goes live just one day before Halloween. Today, my guests and I dish about Lloyd Alexander's The Black Cauldron. It's the second book in the beloved fantasy series, The Chronicles of Perdane, and was published in 1965 when it won a Newbery honor. My second big confession of this intro is that I had never actually heard of this book or series, but my guest suggested it, and I'm so glad she did, because The Black Cauldron is about so much more than an undead military force known as the Cauldron Born. This dark central conflict and the details of the high fantasy world of Perdane will actually end up feeling pretty inconsequential after you tune into this episode, so I encourage you to listen even if this series wasn't on your shelf when you were a kid. Instead of creepy details and bloody battles, this conversation is all about how we present heroines, mansplaining, and different versions of masculinity, including the toxic kind. You'll also get to hear me mispronounce a lot of Welsh proper nouns and publicly declare my reality TV obsession. My partner in all of this discussion is Erin Nelson Perrick. Erin became an indie publisher on the sheer force of her love for and frustration with children's books. Her second Shakespeare for Babies board book, The Wild Waves West, will be published in March 2019. Her first, Behowl the Moon, earned a star from Kirkus Reviews, a recommendation from Parents' Choice Foundation, and praise from Publishers Weekly. She curates lists of baby books that present a diverse and imaginative world at drivelandrool.com. Thanks again to the Day in the Life podcast for sponsoring another episode of SSR. Every week, my good friend Brittany Lynn invites someone new to share about the good, the bad, and the funny parts of their day. You can learn more about the ins and outs of life as a wedding planner, a TV producer, an NFL coach, a veterinarian, and more. It's basically all of the best parts of people watching available right in your earbuds. Find Day in the Life on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. It is Halloween, and if we're talking trick-or-treating, it would be a big treat for me if you left a rating and, better yet, a review of the show on iTunes. These reviews let me know more about what you think of SSR and help others find it more easily. Your starred ratings are awesome, but if you have just a few seconds, I would so appreciate you taking the extra step and jotting down your thoughts in a review. I'll give you all my Reese's Peanut Butter Cups and Hershey's Bars if you do. Don't forget to follow us on social media as well. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can search The SSR Podcast on Facebook to be part of the community there. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to The SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkasik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Erin. Thank you so much for joining us on SSR. Hi, Ellie. I'm so happy to be here. This is going to be really fun. 
And we are recording our Halloween episode. It's currently the end of September, so in spite of the fact that I ate almost a full bag of peanut butter M&Ms by myself in the last two days, like I'm not really in the Halloween spirit yet. The candy Uh, I'm I'm like all caught up on, but other than that, I'm not there yet. I'm so there. I am trying to restrain myself from going full PTA and like hanging little bats all over my house. I'm very excited for Halloween. I feel like you have full permission to do that now. People start celebrating Halloween in August, so... If anything, it's I think ridiculous. You do but that I'm, after I'm we're for done it. talking, yeah, go for yeah. it. Like, who says you can't? So it's the Halloween season. Tis the season for Halloween, and we are talking about the Black Cauldron. And when you and I first connected to talk about this, I was like, we have to do a Halloween episode. Do you want to do it? And like, let's think of a spooky book. The Black Cauldron was your idea, so you kind of like knew about the series before I did. I'd never heard of, and I'm gonna pronounce it wrong, listeners. I'm gonna pronounce a lot of stuff wrong in this episode because oh there's it's a all lot Welsh. of. It's the worst. It's so hard. There's like a reference guide at the end, so I might try that, but I also might just like abandon all hope and go with my first instinct. The series is called The Chronicles of Prydain. I'm, I'm going to say Chronicles I, of Prydain. I think it's Prydain. Prydain. I okay. well, I actually did read these books as a kid, and I thought they'd be a really good thing to tackle on the podcast because I just hadn't thought of them at all for like 20 years. And it, it's odd because I felt like they were very much a part of the, I don't know, like the the fantasy canon, at least when I was reading a lot of fantasy and a lot of young adult stuff, like it was very, you know, they were on the, on the shelf that you reach for first, mm. that kind of thing. But they didn't used to have that uh, pronunciation guide at the back. And like the words are impossible. It is so hard to figure out how you, how do you even make a guess? And I don't know, a surprising amount of my childhood has been, how should this baffling Welsh word be pronounced? from well, this book and some others. So. Well, I'm glad for the pronunciation guide, but I do have to say I spent the whole book wondering, like, how am I going to do the podcast about this? I can't mm-hmm. say any of the words. And I hadn't seen the pronunciation guide until I finished because it's on, like, the last page. <sighs> yeah. So then I kind of read the sigh of relief, but at the same time, like I said, there's just a lot pronunciation-wise to tackle here. So listeners, please forgive us in advance if please, we're inconsistent <laughs> or if it sounds really ugly because – at least on my end, it's bound to. Erin, I think you might do a better job than me. I have been trying so, so hard to figure out how to pronounce these things, but I started with just this gut reaction based on who knows what, probably when I was like 10 or 11 or something like that. And that's the that's the mental pronunciation in my head. So I can try and correct myself all I want, but I'm probably going to say it three different ways for everything. Fair. So. I mean, in my head, I still, when I see the name on the page reading Harry Potter, I still kind of think Hermione because when I was eight, like that's what I thought it was. Right. You get, you get like the mental cadence in your head and you can't change it very easily. So it becomes very difficult. That's what I thought. Hermione. I know your name is Hermione, but when I was little, I just had never seen that word before. So forgive me. Anyway, the Black Cauldron. So tell me more. You read these books when you were a kid. I was a big fantasy reader when I was younger, but as I mentioned to you before we started recording, these books were not on my radar as a kid, and I'm not sure if they just like weren't in my school library or something. Mm-hmm. But tell me about your experience with them. Were you big in fantasy in general? Like, Was this one of your favorite series? I was a huge reader of pretty much anything I could get my hands on, which is kind of still the case. But I didn't really have a whole lot of other friends who were peers who were readers, so mm-hmm. I didn't have... I didn't have a circle to check in with. I have no idea if everybody else was reading these books or not. I don't know where they came from. I don't know when I got them. I definitely had my own copies. I was talking with some friends now that I have who were readers in their youth, but we were all reminiscing about the Dell Yearling covers and like how they were very iconic. The 
cover art that you have on a particular book that you read so many times becomes such a part of your impression of it. And then everybody has a different copy. So you don't even have that in common. Yeah, I definitely read them quite a few times. And yet at the same time, I don't know that they were particularly my favorites, if that makes sense. And going back, I understand what what I was drawn to and what I wasn't drawn to. I don't know if this will resonate with you or with anyone else at all, but there was reading was what I did. And so there were some books that I read a bunch of times just because I had a lot of time on my hands and I had the book. So it's sort of this like work a day. Oh, well, I haven't read that in a while. I guess I'll read that again. So you read these books like 10 times and you don't even have any particular affection for them. It's just like, well, that's the book that I know. Yeah. That totally resonates with me. For me, it was Redwall. I read that whole series because it was kind of like the last series left at the library that I hadn't Exactly. It's there. And so you read it because it's not the internet age. And so you can't have everything at your fingertips all the time. There's a limited number of books in the library. Right. And you might not love the series, but it's there and there's all of these books to read. And I do think that there's something about these high fantasy series as the Chronicles of Perdane is and as Redwall is that it's like, even if you don't love the book, there's so much depth to the world that it's like, even if you're not loving the story, even if you're not connecting with the characters as a kid, you feel this commitment to like learn more about Mm -hmm. the universe and to like keep going especially because as a kid like I miss that feeling of having a series at your fingertips where you know there's all of these books to get through so I totally hear you I think it was just like oh this is the next series that I need Mm -hmm. to be trying you know so little of the world but having a world that's contained is a really nice place to explore Mm. you know all of the characters, like Perdane is a really small universe, I think. I, going through it now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's meant to be both small and navigable in a sense that the, the outside world really just isn't. There are only so many people in it. There are only so many strata of society. There's only so many ways that things can work. And so you can kind of go into this fantasy world and know where the boundaries are. I don't know if that was part of the particular appeal of fantasy to me, but I it sounds good when I say it now. It does. It sounds very good. And I think you're right. My first instinct when I start a book like this that's unfamiliar to me is some overwhelm because it's like you have to get familiar with the names. And like we were saying, these names are very hard to read and a lot of them are very similar. It's hard to keep track of them. You're getting familiar with places and all of these, mm-hmm. like like you said, social strata and sort of different kinds of relationships. But by the end of the book, I tend to agree where it's like 180 pages in, I sort of had a sense of this whole world of Perdane. And that is refreshing as a kid, but also as an adult. Mm -hmm. The real world is so negative and scary these days that it is cool to be transported to a place where you can kind of make sense of things, even if there's terrifying issues at hand, like the cauldron born, as we're going to talk about. Like It's cool to be able to sort of sink into a new place and feel like you understand what's going on. Do you hold with that theory that in times of great conflict in the real world, people tend to move to fantasy and very, very unrealistic portrayals of fiction? I think so. I mean, for myself, I don't read a ton of high fantasy anymore, which is weird because I was so obsessed with it when I was a kid. And Mm -hmm. I think some of it is just there's not as much available for adults, or at least it's not as mainstream. But in terms Mm -hmm. of my general media consumption, I definitely turn to the more ridiculous when things are crazy. Like, This is an embarrassing thing to admit, but I love reality TV. I love it. And I think that in itself is a fantasy world. Absolutely, yeah. It's refreshing to watch something that's so ridiculous and so out of touch with the way that I live my life. 
like the Real Housewives of New York when there's all of these other terrible things happening in the real world. So maybe not so much in fiction, but I do hold with that theory that people find something that feels fantastical to them when they need an escape. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's one of the rules of genre, right? And I would definitely put reality TV as a example of genre. You know what the rules are. They're going to stick to the rules. So it's a safe place. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's completely legitimate as a pressure valve, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you for legitimizing my reality TV obsession. (laughs) Well, you you certainly don't need my permission, but I think a lot of people get a lot of enjoyment out of that and there's no shame in it. I do. I I have no shame, but it's nice to know that other people feel the same way. So as a precursor to The Real Housewives of New York, we have High Fantasy, such as The Black Cauldron by Lloyd Alexander. It's the second book in the Chronicles of Perdane series. It was published in 1965. And something that I thought was kind of interesting is that it's actually a Newbery Honor book. And people who have listened Mm -hmm. to the podcast previously know that any Newbery is a big deal. Um, a new right honor basically means that you're a runner up as like the single best contribution to American Kidlet over the course of a year. And I think it's interesting now because I think fantasy has sort of waned a bit as a genre and you don't hear that much about these fantasy books getting critically acclaimed in this way. Absolutely. So I was honestly kind of surprised to see that sticker on the book when it got here because I just don't associate these kinds of genre books with awards like the Newbery anymore. Right. I was I was a little surprised to remember that as well. And the, another book in the series is a Newbery winner too. The the fifth book of the five is The High King and that was the Newbery winner. And these books came out bam, 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 like mm. so fast. Five books in five years. And it's just shocking to think about a publication schedule like that with Newbery honors and that kind of thing. And these are only the second in Lloyd Alexander's works for kids, right? Like he did one book, which Time Cat, which I have also read as a kid and I don't remember all that well, but I remember thinking... <laughs> Weird. <laughs> yeah, but he's super prolific. And I read a bunch of his books, again, I think just because he's he had so many. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of like a, I guess, like a brand. Yeah, his name and, was really familiar to me, even though this series wasn't. And I couldn't remember which I had read. It might have been the Time Cat series, because I remember distinctly some covers with cats mm-hmm, on them. Mm-hmm, yeah, I don't know. Part of me thinks there maybe is a developmental age at which fantasy is particularly appealing. You know, like there's somewhere in that, mm, I'm going to say 11 to 15 time period, there's a lot of fantasy reading happening. Yeah. And maybe even a little bit further up into high school when you advance it up to your, I don't know, your Mercedes Lackey and your sword and sorcery. And I suppose um, George R.R. R. Martin. Yeah, totally. All, all the precursors to that, you know, Robert Jordan. And like you, you start with your red wall and then you sort of move up to that. And the, like the books stay the same thickness, but there's just more sex. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Then there's like more sexy fantasy creatures that right. the heroines are lusting over. Oh, yeah. Well, depending on, of course, which side of it. I, I feel like there's there's girls' fantasy and there's boys' fantasy, and yeah, the two never shall the twain meet. And that's an interesting thing about this book, too. I, I have so much to say about the gender politics in this book. Uh, let's get into it. So, like, where would you start there? What's your first... I see you. You're, like, running... You're already, like, wringing your hands over it. So, <laughs> everybody knows I love a good gender politics conversation. So, where do we begin? Context-wise... The main character here is Taryn, um, who's like the assistant pig keeper. He's an orphan, has been raised on on a farm with an enchanter and a farmer. And um, he has this girl who lives on the farm, a young woman, <laughs> whose name I can't pronounce, but I'm going to try for the first time as I look at my pronunciation guide here. I'm cheering for you. Okay. 
Ilanwi? Is that how we say it? I guess. Apparently he made this name up, so we don't have to feel bad about mispronouncing it. Okay. I think accent on the second syllable, and that's all that we can really say. Great. So Ilanwi is literally the only female character in the entire book. Ah, ah, ah. There are three other female characters. Oh, right. The witches. Yes. But of course, you have the witches and then you have the maid, right? I mean, except the witches are the fates, right? Like, we've got the maid and the mother and the crone. And so they are universal. They are lunar. They are portentous. Yes. Well, that's true. They don't exactly count as another female character. And this is, oh, this is the book that I don't know if this was your experience of your fantasy reading as a kid, but like there's this team and, you know, like there's the hero and there's the comic relief and there's the one that bumbles everything up. And then there's the girl and girl is a personality type. And Mm. that's all that there is. And on the one hand, this, these books are absolutely guilty of that because there's only Ilanwi in the entirety of the universe who is a girl that's worth knowing. And she's such a not like other girls. It's not even funny. She doesn't, I, I don't know. I, I went through and I read some of the rest of them as well because I'm a chronic geek. And You're just committed. I really appreciate yes. your commitment. I am hugely committed. I am so into this. It is not cool. But <laughs> she's the, the next book after this one is where she has to go learn to be a princess. And she's very much like, oh, these hens clicking in the castle. Like, I can't handle it. Court ladies are court ladies everywhere. And they just don't have anything interesting to say. It's oh. just gossip and embroidery. Hmm. And like, as a kid, I was very much like, yeah, I would also hate gossip and embroidery, but actually I love gossip and embroidery. Right. <laughs> and I really resent the idea that in order to be a person who's into re- like adventure and important events and world politics, which is essentially what this is, and in order to have physical courage, which she clearly does, yeah. you have to reject all of the other, you know, trappings of femininity. Mm. On the one hand, we have you know, character type is girl, but on the other hand, she's a great character. Yeah. And really one of the joys of rereading this is rediscovering how cool she really is. She knows her own mind. Mm. She's extremely brave. She's extremely independent. She doesn't allow herself to be limited to the gender roles that are available to her, even though the people in her life very much firmly do set her in those gender roles. Like she's never offered an invitation to leave traditional femininity. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, she's just like, well, no, I'm not going to do that. I would rather do this instead. It's not fair. You can do it. So, so can I. Yeah. I mean, she just shows up as part of this mission that the men have gone on, which I loved. Like Mm -hmm. Taryn had kind of been like, oh, we're all going to go off on this military mission and try to capture the Black Cauldron. And you just stay here. The subtitle of this book is Taryn Mansplainer. Like he's the worst. Gosh. (laughs) And then the subtitle should be like Toxic Masculinity 101. Absolutely. This is like... Taryn Mansplainer and the toxic masculinity is the topic of this book. But at the same time, like, that's hugely interesting to me. Like, it's almost explicitly about a battle to choose a masculinity that is not toxic. And for a book that was published in, what did you say, 1965? Yeah. It's a very, it's backward in a lot of ways, but it's also very forward thinking in different ones. And I, I, I guess I kind of ascribe that to the author's ability to actually look at the humanity around him and relay that to the page, despite not maybe having a whole lot of cultural discussion about it. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think it's reflected in Ilanwi's character because there were a lot of moments where I felt like she was just this like kick-ass female character. She's, again, showing up on this mission to which she hasn't been invited. Taryn has actually kind of poo-pooed the fact that she would ever be involved. She's trying to, mm. to do her own thing to bring her gifts and her courage to the table to bring her resources and like really try to contribute to this like 
like very right. important mission that they're on. And there were moments throughout the book where I just loved that she was, as you said, like speaking her own mind and telling the boys what for. Mm-hmm. There were moments too where I felt like the author was kind of surrendering to some stereotypical like themes of women at that time in 1965, mm-hmm. whenever the men would want to be brave and sort of like do the thing that was more dangerous when Taryn wanted to kind of like head right into the heart of where the cauldron was instead of mm-hmm. just going back to meet the rest of the group. Ilanmi was always the one who was like, why would you do that? She's always kind of the more oh. practical one. She was always oh. kind of like the goody two shoes. And I, I couldn't figure out how I felt about that. I couldn't figure out if that made me feel like she's the smart one. She's approaching this with a level head and that's really cool. Or if I felt like she was sort of taking one step forward, two steps back in terms of uh-huh. being like scared and trying to like keep the men on track in a very traditional way. What, what do you think about that? I stuck a little flag on that exact conversation because I think it's just so, it's a really interesting point because being risk averse is part of the narrative for femininity, right? Like that is, that is absolutely something that is supposed to be on the woman's like men are into the glory and the honor and the doing dumb crap and the hold my beer. And women are like level headed and we always make good choices and we weigh the whatever and keep everyone back and kill all the fun at the same time. Like, okay, so here's, where I got it. Okay. Sorry. This is my, Super cool self. For listeners, <laughs> there are multicolored little post-it flags all over Aaron's book, and you know that that makes me so happy. <laughs> okay, so here here's the section, and it says, Island Wee and Dolly the Dwarf have suggested that the only sensible thing to do is to return to their leader and head for, you know, safety and get everybody banded together and then go, like, after the cauldron. And then Taran says, it may be that we would be wiser returning to Gwydion. Blah, 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 blah. And then Elider, who we may as well just call him toxic masculinity embodied. Like, uh. yes, like he's he's just like a walking, fuming time bomb of rudeness and glory. Mm. Um, and he says, do you think I would turn my back now when the prize is nearly won? Go your way, pig boy, and I shall go mine to the marshes of Morva themselves. <laughs> and, like, yep. and then Tyron is just like rising to the bait. Go back the rest of you if that's what you want. I was a fool to listen to the thoughts of a girl. <laughs> so like they, like they they signpost it. They're like, no, here's girl, here's man. But the really interesting thing is he's stupid for doing that right yeah. like the narrative is like Tara you moron mm. and at the same time the narrative also sets up a lot of t- points where it's really mocking island we right like it's very it's very much saying like she's she keeps getting described as scatterbrained yeah and like chattering and like prattling and all these words that basically mean you don't have to listen to her I don't see one single time in the actual words that she says where there's anything. She's not wasting words. She's not saying anything unnecessary. She's she's just talking. Yeah, she's, she's very calm, it. and she just is, like, sharing her opinion. I agree with you. I right. Scatterbrained is certainly not the word that I would use to describe what, what her. What is scatterbrained about her? She never does anything scatterbrained. She's she's in control of herself. And like everybody just keeps like patting her on the head as they walk by. And it's maddening. But we're yeah. allowed to see this. So I, I don't really know where to come down on like authorial intent and like the author is dead and all that stuff. But he's got this setup where you can see through to this badass, badass character. Uh, Lloyd Alexander does rather. Right where you can watch her being badass in a world and appreciate that. And yet at the same time, he's deriding her in the adjectives. Mm. 
That's a really interesting point. It's sort of these like two forces fighting against each other because it's I, like yeah. he's setting her up to be cool and brave and all these things, but it's almost like the environment in which he was writing this book and in which he was born is one where it's easier to slip those adjectives in and still describe a character, a female character, of course, mm-hmm as scatterbrained and silly. It's almost like the show versus tell thing, right? Like he's showing that she is this awesome character, this heroine, but he's telling perhaps a different story. Absolutely. And I really think that that resonates so much. When I was young, like I really think that the character of Ilanwe is a really big reason why I kept reading these books. Mm. And I remember being vaguely ashamed at liking her so much, partly because it was, okay, so she's the girl, so you identify with the girl and that's how that is. And like, oh, you just have to have the girl to identify with. And I would hope that kids these days don't have to make that choice, right? Like that there are so many more great female characters in all levels of writing and, you know, fantasy and adventure and and all that stuff. But the books that I remember reading, girl was a special type, right? Like it's a special interest. You have your your hero and then you have your girl. And if Mm. it has a girl as the hero, that's a girl's book. Yeah. And if it has a girl as a side character, then you have to like make a ton of comments about how she's a girl and you have to describe her physically a lot and you have to give her lots of like pratfalls essentially to make her non-threatening. And I really think that a lot of this whole, like she prattles is making her non-threatening because if you come right down to it, Taran is anxious about a lot of things. Like he's anxious about his lack of birth. He's anxious about his physical honor. He's anxious about his, his glory among people. He wants a place in the world. I don't kind of has all that Mm. when you come right down to it. And not only that, she isn't the least bit anxious about it. Yeah. She's a princess and she couldn't care less. In the earlier book, she was... I was actually going to ask you because I feel like I wanted more Ilanwi in this mm-hmm. book, and it seems, based on what you're saying, that having read the whole series, like there's so much more to love about her. So I was actually there going is. to ask what her role is in the other books, because I feel like I didn't get as much of a sense of her as I would have liked. And again, maybe yeah. it was because I was trying to keep track of all of these male characters. And like therein lies the problem, right? right Where it's right, like right, when right. there's so many men that you have to keep track of, it is right, there's easy. like 25 men and one woman. Yeah, it's easy to lose sight of what she's doing beyond, honestly, like being a little bit of a fun sucker at times. And again, yeah. I'm a practical person. I was very much on her side. But I do think that having come into this world in this book, it's easy to be like, oh, this is the character that's set up to kind of be like the stereotypical naggy Right. Just like dragging at everybody's shirts, trying to get them to go home and sit down and have some tea. Exactly. Like super cool that you showed up to help the guys out, but what are you going to do now to be braver? And I don't like to feel that way about this book. So I am curious, having read the series and clearly having a better window into her character, how do you think that the rest of these books kind of like round her out and make her that really cool heroine that girl readers need? Well, I don't think they quite make the full leap. I think that- If they were written today, then it would be different, Mm -hmm. that she would have a fuller, bigger role as a driver of the action. And I really think like in this book, think about if you if you did a gender swap, right? If a character who is left behind, who is fully as qualified as the other character, because she is, she went through the whole other adventures with them in the first book. If a character like that was left behind and then ran up to join the people at the very last moment when they were at the gates of the underworld itself and defied all expectations to do that, if it was a male character, you would expect him to save the day. The best that can be said for her is she does not need saving herself. Like, she really doesn't need rescuing. She loses her horse, which 
I mean, there's some symbolism for you, right? Like she has to ride on somebody else's horse the whole way. Uh (laughs) And just like her horse happened to wander off at at the pivotal moment. And so now here she is riding on someone else's horse with them in front and like has no agency of her own to drive the own, her plot. Right. Cannot cannot propel herself from A to B. God forbid. But at the same time like she does everything that everybody else does. She mm-hmm. doesn't hold them back. She doesn't she doesn't hamper them in any way, but she also isn't crucial. If it were a male character, you would absolutely expect a crucial contribution like this whole like if he hadn't come, all would have been lost. Hmm. And she doesn't get that. There would have been sort of this sense of like pun intended, I guess, like coming in on the white horse as a man. Absolutely. Being like, We need one more man to save the day and she right. is if anything, they're like, Ugh, now we have to deal with her. Right. And they're all like laughing at her. They're like, Oh, was it hard to get here on your own? And like, you assholes. Yeah. Like she came all this way with herself. Oh my god. Also Gergi. I hate Gergi so much. I hate him. I hate him. I don't know if everybody else is like thinks this is cute. It's, I don't understand, he's creepy. Gurgi is sort of this, it was interesting because I, I read an article in preparation for this about, there's a lot more out there about the Disney adaptation, which was like loosely based on, on this book and the first book in the mm-hmm. series. And I read an article about Gurgi in the, in the movie and how nobody's quite sure if the way they portrayed him in the movie is what he's supposed to look like in the book. Because I guess in the movie, he looks kind of just like a dog. That's so weird. He's clearly like some kind of weird primate. Yeah. He's like a super weird beast. I, I have no idea. And and he just kind of like follows them around and I guess he's like trying to be helpful and he always seems to like show up when they need help but it something about it just really didn't sit right with me and unfortunately is like the part of the fantasy genre that I've probably outgrown which makes me sad like a character like Gurgi. No, I, think, I don't think this is outgrown I hated him as a kid too he's, he did yeah. yes oh he's up the, the third person talking and the rhyming stuff and like he's completely useless just I, honestly I think he's in the book because if you have Taran and Eilenwey together alone for the whole part of the quest that it's Taran, Eilenwey and Gurgi then that's improper right like yeah. and then you have to ha- you have to deal with interpersonal tensions between them and like do you have a romantic subplot do you have a lot of tent like fighting yeah. like what do you do but no you stick a monkey in there and by god now we have a quest band what why is he here what is this there's not even any other animals in the entire universe that are like him yeah he just exists for some reason he comes with Ilanwi to like join the group basically he's like i helped her. i mean i'm not even going to do the rhyming thing because it's really annoying but He's like, I helped her get here, and now here I am. And they become sort of this, like, motley crew of, of exactly. warriors. Whereas if she'd just come by herself, then you have to deal with her just as a full human being. Like, you have to be like, she made this decision. She did this journey on her own. She is here. But no, it's them. It's Eileen and Gurgi, the, the support crew, right? Like, right. The, the cheerleaders, the people who are not who are non-combatants. Right. Like we didn't invite them on the first round, but the fact that they showed up is fine. Right. We'll just deal with it. It's fine. I don't know what this says about me, but I'll say it because we were just talking about it. I did find myself like looking for the sexual tension between Taryn and Ilan me the whole time. And yeah. I don't know if they that's do end just, up married. You're not wrong. They I do. Mean, okay. No, I mean, come on. It's a trope, right? Like there are five people. One of them's a girl. One of them's a hero. Guess which two end up together, right? And but I hated that because at least in this book, I don't think she. They're not leading with her as the romantic object. I guess. Right. I guess. Right. At this time in history when this book was written, maybe there's always sort of that element of throw a girl in the mix and like, of course she's going to be an object. But I did, I kept kind of like hitting myself because I was highlighting passages being like, oh, like will they or won't they? But that was so not the point of this particular story. The point of the story was that they were on this quest to find the cauldrons that they could like sort of 
stop the effects of these cauldron-born monsters and kind of like bring back peace to Perdane. And I kept being like, mm, I wonder if they're going to make out. And that's, <laughs> that's, I guess, just like pop culture getting in my yeah. head and just like training me that that's what you're supposed to look for. But I did, I was looking for that sexual tension, but they had it. I mean, they had the kind of witty banter that in a movie totally would have played out as like, right. they hate each other at first, but they're going to fall in love. What I think that the author does do a good job of subverting a little bit is that not everything happens the way you would expect. They do legitimately like each other from the beginning, right? Like they fight a lot. They fight a lot. They always fight a lot. Constantly. But it's more like that's just their relationship. And the five book arc is basically Tarin grows from a completely immature jackass to a slightly less immature jackass. Right. <laughs> like like the maturity comes and he gets less jackassy. Right. But okay, according to the world of the book, by the fifth book he's an emotionally mature adult. Okay. And according to the world of the book, in the first book, he is completely impossible. And he is completely impossible in the first book. Like he's, he is full, like, I'm going to go claim glory and everybody else is worthless. And there's nothing that's good except killing things and swords. (laughs) And so we open the toxic masculinity Pandora's box. Thank you for that. (laughs) I think we need to discuss this further. You mentioned briefly earlier, kind of this question that's presented throughout the book about like different types of men, you know, what it means to be like a strong man, a fully realized man. And there's these two male characters, Taryn and Eliger, who in my view are kind of meant to represent like the two options for a young man in the way that you approach your masculinity and in the way that you approach the world. And they both sort of have a toxic masculinity about them in different ways. Like they've both fallen victim to different influences that make the way that they present themselves toxic and problematic. Um, Obviously, Elder, I think more than Taryn, but... I don't even know where to start with the toxic masculinities. To set it up, they both want glory. But Elder is very much more, I think, about like these outward, really aggressive forms Mm -hmm. of masculinity. And we find out later that it's a lot of insecurity. Like he has been born into a good family and he seems to have all his shit together. But he sees that other people have been more successful and have a stronger character than he does. And then on the other side, you have Taryn, who, again, is born an orphan, has no idea who his parents are, hasn't had a lot of opportunity to like look good and have glory. None of that has come naturally to him, but he has a stronger character. And so he struggles with insecurity in a different way where he's like, I wish that I had had some things handed to me. Like I wish that I had status. I wish that I had a better reputation and sort of a family name. So they're both kind of struggling with these insecurities, which I think is an interesting commentary on like manhood, perhaps. The book is very interesting on the topic of manhood, I think. Elider is is 100% like what not to do. Like he's he's set up as like everything he does is wrong, Mm. but at the same time he gets away with it. And I think that Taryn's insecurity is... A lot of it is just sort of outrage at him getting away with it, yeah. at a lighter getting away with it. And I really think the book totally centers Taryn. It's very much a, a story about like him trying to choose a path forward. And I think when you think about the things that the book sets up as positive masculine role models, I see Guidian and mm-hmm. I see Adan. One of them being the war leader of the High King and, you know, the hero of the story. And interestingly, this is something that Alexander totally made up. A lot of the book kind of draws from Welsh mythology. Mm-hmm. Guidian is in Welsh mythology, but he's a trickster character. Okay. There. Like he's there's not a good side and a bad side in in the Mabinogion, there's a there's one side and then there's another side. And mm-hmm. Guidian is on one side, but like 
in this one, it's sort of inverted that instead of like having a bilateral situation, it's an up and a down, right? Mm-hmm. And Guardian is the good guy. Right. And everything he does is good. Everything he has ever done is good. Everything he will ever do is good. And he is not proud and he's not boastful and he's very courageous and he sets himself above. He's very polite to people and courteous and very like, I don't know, anytime somebody says like, you'll smite them down, Guardian, he's like, I would much rather be farming than smiting. And it's like, you've never farmed a day in your life, you weirdo. But like, (laughs) the books are very much very repetitive on the topic of honor is in productive labor, not in war. Mm. And yet at the same time, we only talk about the war parts. Intervening the times of the books, there are things that happen that are not battles, but we don't do those books because that's not the kind of story that we're telling. We're telling a war story. Right. Adeon is the son of the chief bard and he's wise and measured and the perfect form of any kind of human and has done everything and knows everything. I'm getting a little flag out here. As they spoke together to ease the rigors of their journey, Taran soon realized that there was little Adean had not seen or done. Mm. He was he had sailed far beyond the Isle of Mona, even to the northern sea. He had worked at the potter's wheel, cast nets with the fisher folk, woven cloth at the looms of the cottagers, and like Taran, labored over the glowing forge. Of forest lore he had studied deeply, and Taran listened in wonder as Adean told of the ways and natures of woodland creatures, of bold badgers and cautious dormice and geese winging under the moon. There is much to be known, said Adean, and above all, much to be loved, be it the turn of the seasons or the shape of a river pebble. Indeed, the more we find to love, the more we add to the measure of our hearts. And like that, I think, is his philosophy, right? Like that's like, be like this guy, yeah. not like this guy, right? Like it's it's very much Adean, yes, a lighter no. Yeah. Adean is definitely the character that as a teen girl reading this book, you would fall in love with. Be still my heart. Yeah, be still my heart. In the world of high school, he's the guy who is like the star of the musical and always reads his really good poetry aloud in English class, but also Uh is like a decent basketball player. Right, exactly. He's got the jack, he's got the arts, he's got the talents, yeah. and yet and yet he's also always so calm and kind to everybody and like, right. oh, it's not even a thing. Like, by all means, like, you do your poetry too. It's super good. Yeah, and you can call him as like, if you're a girl and you're his friend, you can call him for advice and he's respectful mm-hmm. right. and he has so much wisdom to offer and he right. probably has like a great relationship with his mom. He is completely secure in all of his beliefs and all of his interests. Like, at no point is he questioning whether he needs to focus on any one thing. Everybody seems mm-hmm. to assume that he's going to follow in his father's footsteps and become a bard, but he's like, I don't right. know. I'm good at being a bard, but like I am interested in all these other things and I right. And there's no angst about it. No. There's no anxiety whatsoever. He just is just completely himself and it's fine. There's no showing how he got to that point. He just sprung up that way. Yeah, and he ends up dying fairly early in the book. Spoiler well, alert. I mean, He's too perfect to live. Right. And then so we just kind of have his spirit that's infecting the rest of the story in the most beautiful way because he's imparted these philosophies onto Taryn about manhood and about like what it means to be a good person and what it means to be a good man. And the physical manifestation of that is this necklace. I think they call it a clasp that he's given to brooch. Yeah. Some sort of a piece of jewelry. Um, that has, like, the symbol of the bard on it, and that's all about, like, love and knowledge and wisdom. And, and so, it's magical. It's magical. It gives Taryn the ability to have prophetic dreams, which are super creepy and honestly not something that I think I would want to have. Like, I don't know that I yeah. would want to wake up and be like, that dream about me being chased by werewolves means that I'm going to be chased by werewolves. It's a bit of a burden, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure, and ultimately Taryn feels the full weight of this responsibility of sort of being the steward of this 
piece of jewelry because he barters it so that he can get the cauldron from the witches that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So how do I pronounce his name? Aiden? I think it's Adayan. I don't Adayan. know. Let me, let me consult I think my handy right. pronunciation Adayan. guide. Yeah, Adayan. So Adayan is sort of like a physical and a philosophical presence for the whole book. I was sad to see him die so early on, but I do yeah. think it was interesting that he's presented as this sort of the least physical of all the characters, the least typical... Yeah, he gets stuck holding the horses with the teenagers. Yeah, like he's not physical. He's not super aggro. But in the end, like he's the one that dies earliest. And and he's Mm -hmm. sort of the last one who would want to. He's the last one who would want to try to prove himself in a battle. He's just doing what he thinks is the right thing for him to do. He's not doing it because. It's duty. Yeah, he's not like these other guys that are really after their own reputation as Mm -hmm. strong warriors. And so I thought that was kind of interesting The fact that we would not have expected him to be the one to die in battle first. And he did. Hmm. I kind of marked him for death immediately just because it's, right, it's it's genre awareness, right? Like if there's somebody with no faults, they're obviously going to die. Tragic hero. Exactly. I do think that the way that they idealize him is fascinating. The interesting thing about the toxic masculinity plot to me is that Taran recognizes it very early on. Like he recognizes this is not a good way to be. I should stop that. Like. His first encounter with Elider the Jerk is Elider like grabbing him up from his from like Taran choosing his battle poorly literally and getting beat. Right. And he immediately he's got a temper and he could be goaded into saying something really poorly thought out, but he immediately apologizes. Right. Mm-hmm. Like very quickly he's within the first I don't know ten pages maybe he's already apologized to what's his face and said the enemy is outside not us not within us like let's be friends and the guy's like screw you I don't care about you you're not worth being my friend I'm gonna keep up this my name above all front Taran has to kind of cope with that over and over and over again through the book. And I think that that is actually a really interesting way to set it up. It's one thing for the character to be fighting the forces of toxic masculinity within himself, but being forced to interact with somebody else who's not fighting it, who's just living that toxic life. Yeah. I mean, that's something we've all come up against, right? Oh, yeah. How do I deal with this jerk? Yeah. I can't change him. He doesn't appear to be learning anything. He continues to be a jerk day to day. Yeah. I don't know. That's relatable to 2018. Well, I think especially from the perspective of a male character, obviously I'm a woman and so I don't mm-hmm. I, I don't know how it would feel to be a man like Taryn who is struggling with these different images of being a man and what toxic masculinity looks like from that perspective. But I haven't read a book, I don't think, that so clearly sets up that kind of an inner conflict where a man mm-hmm. is trying to figure out how toxic is too toxic, how right, aggro is right. too aggro, <laughs> what's appropriate here, like what does it really mean to be strong, what does it really mean to be victorious, should I be focusing right. more on physical feats or should I just be trying to be a good person? So right. I thought that was really interesting. I've talked about this a lot on the podcast where it's like some of these books that are you know genre titles, high fantasy, it's easy to get lost and to, to really stress about the logistics of things. Like, am I going to be able to recall details of this battle and, and the politics? And I was worried preparing for this conversation that like I wasn't going to remember anything. But at the end of the day, the questions that are being explored in this book are really pretty basic. And mm-hmm. none of the other stuff really matters that much. Right. It's really about like what the characters figure out on the quest. When you break the quest mm-hmm. down, it's pretty simple. They want to get the cauldron. Ultimately, they get it because Taryn has some really quick thinking. 
decides to trade this clasp that he got from Adayan. Of course, there's some drama at the end because Eladir sacrifices himself so that the cauldron can be destroyed. Like, those are all interesting plot points, of course. But when you really get down to it, and maybe this is just an adult reading, those things don't matter as much as what the characters are actually figuring out over the Mm -hmm. course of the quest. And as a kid, I don't know that I picked up on that as much. But it is interesting when you, like, really break down what's actually happening in this book. One of my favorite lines was, I think, on the second to last page. And Taryn says, It is strange. I had longed to enter the worlds of men. Now I see it filled with sorrow, with cruelty and treachery, with those who would destroy all around them. And Gwydion says, Yet enter it you must, for it is a destiny laid on each of us. True, you have seen those things, but they are equal parts of love and joy. Think of a day in and believe this. Think, too, of your companions out of friendship for you. They would have given up all they valued, indeed, all they possessed. You choose to be a hero, not through enchantment, but through your own manhood and since you have chosen for good or ill you must take the risks of a man you may win or you may lose time will decide and I think that conversation is like such a great way to sum up this journey that Taryn is on but really that they're all on about Mm -hmm. like what you value and so ultimately like all the other stuff doesn't matter it's great that we have these spooky elements because it gives us an excuse to talk about this for Halloween absolutely yeah but the core of this is really just figuring out like what it means to be a man and also what it means to just be like a good person. Absolutely. And I think that that's like that speech is so very much the core of things. Yeah. And yet at the same time, that is the part that makes me feel like this book is truly good as far as a exploration of what it means to be coming into your own, to choose your own adulthood, but that it's also very limited in who it sees that choice open to because it is about becoming a man, right? Island Wee does not have the option to become a hero. Nobody was willing to offer up everything that they were for her. There's no discussion of who can be a man, right? Like, do we have questions of race? Do we have questions of sexuality? Do we have questions of gender identity that are less binary in this? Like, is this a path that is open to everybody or is it just a path open to this one person, Taran, and people who are like him, people who identify with him? That's where I feel that the world of the book is a little small. It doesn't have a path forward for everybody. Everything is centered on Terran to us to an extent that like it's extremely believable that a 15-year-old boy would be <laughs> identifying with this, right? Like because he is so the center of everything. Mm. Why is he the one that's making the call when it's de- the ter- determination is do we go to the marshes of Morva or do we go back to dad slash boss slash Gwydion slash person right. who knows everything? Yeah. Like, why is he making the choice? He's the guy that's holding the horses. He's literally the lowest ranking person of this entire quest. <laughs> and somehow Fluterflam is literally a king. He's an adult and an actual adult king. And he's all like, I don't know, Taran, what should we do? Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> why? Yeah, and it all rests on him. And I also think there's this sense that, like, there can only be one winner. It's either him or right. Elidur. There, and and, well, and there's also only one real person. Right, and one real right. man. Like, there's only right. one guy that can actually be a man here. And Right, there's not enough room for more than one kind of man. Yeah, to the point that one of them actually has to sacrifice himself. And I think that shows, you know, in a very dramatic way that Elidur has had some personal growth here and then Taryn's kind yeah. of left to figure out what that means for him which is again like well, such a I weird mean, thing Elder actually he literally asks him to give up the glory of the thing like he has to 
Tyrion has to actually sacrifice the glory of the deed in order to accomplish the deed. And right. I think that is kind of a neat little point, right? Like, that's... That was brilliant. Right. Yeah, Elidor basically says, like, he's not going to help the rest of the group carry the cauldron back to the rest of wherever. the crew. To MacGuffinville. Yeah, wherever they're going. Again, it was hard to keep track of some of these details, but... He says that he's not going to help them carry the cauldron, which is obviously very heavy back, unless Taryn agrees that he's not going to take any of the credit for having actually obtained the cauldron. And Taryn did do that. It was his bargaining and his It was smarts. It was Alanwi who lets the cat out of the bag immediately because yeah. she's like, screw this whole like game. Yeah. I'm not doing that. Which yeah. neatly lets the whole thing out, but also she's not bound by the contract of honor because she has no honor because her honor is based on her sexual purity and that's a whole other situation. Yeah. But yeah, but she's sort of separate from this whole agreement that they've made. And so in the end, she tells everybody that it was Taryn who succeeded in the mission and Elder feels like he looks like a fool. All he's been doing his whole life is trying to get glory on his own. Right. Because well, again, the grass is always greener. It's like, I was born with a good name. I have parents. I have status. But I want to achieve right. that for myself. Whereas for Taryn, it's like, I don't have parents. I don't have a good name. So how can I achieve that status that somebody like right. Elder has right. so that I look better in that way? So it's like, nobody is content with what they have. And everybody's trying to achieve glory in the opposite kind of way that's already been handed to them. And, and so it's very complicated. And the definition of honor that they use, yeah. right? Like, Eladir is very much saying, like, I want the honor of this, but it's... Okay, so, like, are you familiar with the Order of the Garter? Uh, vaguely. Like, I've heard of it, but I don't know a lot about it, so film me. Let's, okay, so this is totally Order of Combat, but um, the... Order of the Garter is one of the, is I think maybe the highest honor in British knighthood or in British, like, chivalry. Okay. And... It's very old, and the symbol of it is a literal garter, like the kind of, not not the, like the lacy kind that we have nowadays, but the same concept. Okay. A woman's stocking holder upper. Got it. And the motto of it is Aniswat Kimali Pense, which is, shameful is he who thinks this is shameful. And the idea is that if you are truly honorable, then nothing can touch you with shame because you are pure at heart, right? Like you, you cannot be shameful, even carrying around ladies under things because you would never stoop to sin. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's right. kind of hard to nail down, but the idea is that it's an, inter- an internal and character-bound hmm. incorruptibility as opposed to what anybody thinks. Let them think what they may. I know my own heart. It's like right? an intrinsic yes. goodness, sort of. Well, not not goodness, but character, I think, is is the best way to put it, is, is just like a commitment to act with virtue okay. in every situation, regardless of the, of the context and regardless of how you will look. Hmm. Right? Like, don't mind the haters, as it were. Okay. All right. I get that. That makes sense. Right. So don't worry about what other people think. If you are, okay. So if your character is good, nothing. Right. If you are doing the honorable thing, then that is all that matters, no matter how it appears to everybody else. And it just really struck me how very, very different that concept is from the concept of honor that Elider is talking about when he talks about, I'm going to do this clearly baddie type thing. And I am taking the honor from it. It's not honor, it's glory, right? right? And the two are very mixed up in there. One of the other things I was really wondering about this is how much does it matter that Lloyd Alexander is an American? How much is this a thing that is a fundamentally new world conception of a fundamentally old world scenario, right? Mm, because okay. these these characters are not 
pseudo medieval people, right? Like no. we're in we're in the all fantasy is semi medieval setting, right? But these and, people are not of that. Right. Yeah. This is not, they don't they don't have that mindset. They don't have that world. They're 1960s Americans in sword and sorcery situation. In different outfits. Right. Exactly. How does that change things? Right. Like how does that? Well, it changes the value system. It's a different set of concerns. In real medieval times, people were worried about survival <laughs> and right, right. about like whether or not their families were going to eat, about whether or not they were going to die of some terrible like digestive disease because their right. food wasn't well taken care of. And I think an American man in the 60s, it's like, your concerns are not that. Obviously there's bigger problems that... <laughs> he explicitly that- just like comments out the worry about hunger, right? Like yeah. He, in the very first book, he introduces this wallet of plenty or whatever and that's the only thing that Gurgi has and he carries it around and so everybody always has enough to eat and we just don't have to talk about that anymore. Right. You right. eliminate any real problems and you replace them with problems that are much more philosophical and existential. Mm-hmm. And in this time period, for real, nobody was really that worried about that. I can't imagine that there were two men, Taryn and Elider's ages, who were like battling it out to figure out whose philosophy on manhood was most meaningful. I mean, life. maybe they were. There's cer- there's a certain, let's call it a continuity of character between Western masculinity through the ages, right? Yeah, like that's true. young men have, in fact, battled over stupid crap for many, many, many centuries. It doesn't mean that this is the kind of crap that they specifically battled over. Yeah. Right? And, and sort of figuring out who can be the biggest martyr and, and who can do the most for the community. It's interesting. I will say you have fully convinced me that there's so much more to this book than it being like a cool fantasy story. And I think it's easy to start a book like this thinking that you need to be so caught up again in like the details and the characters and there's the map on the first page and you're like, oh no, I'm going to have to make sure (laughs) I know know what's happening. I always see the map and I'm like, am I going to need to know this stuff? Right. I'm like, do I have to put a Because I can't do Google maps. I cannot, I definitely cannot handle Perdain maps. No. Oh God. It was, I was like, I hope I don't have to keep track of this. I feel fully convinced that this is like such a deeper book than that. It's the kind of book that I can see wanting to read multiple times because I think it almost requires you to understand, to sort of get like a cursory understanding of the world so that then you can dive back in and like actually get to the heart of things. So no, and I, I'm sold. There's so much richness here. I mean, we haven't even talked about the World War II no. underpinnings and all that stuff. And it's mm. just like, there's a lot here. Yeah. I mean, we could probably and go on for another it's like hour. It's like thin little, little tome. It is. It's 180 pages. And I read yeah. it in like two days, but it and is let us, shocking Let us how briefly praise how great Lloyd Alexander is at getting a lot done in very clear prose because yes. I had forgotten that. And he's actually a quite good writer. He, the writing he gets is beautiful done. for sure. I was very impressed. I will say before we start to close out our conversation, I found something that was kind of funny while I was researching because again, I had mentioned this earlier, but Disney did sort of like a loose film adaptation of this book in the mid eighties. It was called The Black Cauldron, but it sort of pulled from the first two books in the series. I don't think I ever saw it. It wasn't a huge Disney book. But I happened to find in my research that there's a change.org petition with 63 supporters um, called Pretty in Book Fan Remake the Black Cauldron Movie. (laughs) And it's this very intense petition that's like, now it's been almost 30 years and no official news on whether <laughs> Disney Studios will announce a Black Cauldron movie remake. This movie I, needs to be made well. Just think, when Lord of the Rings cartoon movie was made in 1978, it was rushed and it didn't go as well in the box office. 23 years later, Peter Jackson did a Lord of the Rings remake. 
Now I ask Disney Studios to go back and do a movie remake, <laughs> starting with the book of three. So they're actually demanding movies for all five books. They're wow. also saying there also needs to be a video game for PlayStation 2, 3, <laughs> Xbox, Xbox 360. platform demands. With better graphics. <laughs> when this movie gets remade, I hope it will be a lot better than the Rush 1985 cartoon movie. And hopefully Disney will not change much. And make it more true to the books, and here we go, and do a well-done job, and maybe get an Academy Award. Wow. Wow. And well, then, I don't know the date yeah. on that, but I do know that Disney bought the rights in 2016 to the whole set again. Oh, which this was 2013. Which probably cost them upwards so, of $30. So. Yeah, pricey. So I just thought that was really funny, and then... I guess at that point, like, they hadn't heard from Disney, those 63 signatures, and there's an update that said, hello, as you may know, I don't think Disney has any plans of remaking the movie. It's shameful <laughs> that the Disney company has ignored their movie plans. So I just thought that was really funny. Um, In this time of trouble, right. this is the top thing on our list. <laughs> Priorities, people. So has this experience of revisiting The Black Cauldron made you love it all the more, or did you find that it didn't hold up the way that you may have expected? Um, it certainly held up. Like I said, I, I read it a lot as a kid, but mm-hmm. I didn't... Having an awareness of context and some basic literary theory skills has definitely made it more enjoyable for me. Like, now I'm, I'm just going to be going through my life being like, let's talk about the Prydain books. Everybody, come on, book club. And the entire world is going to go like, what? Oh. I feel like I'm going to spend the rest of my life characterizing people as Eliders or Terrans, just like figuring I mean, out which men fall on which we- side of that two-sided yes. man and, coin. And if we see an elider, can we just agree to cauldron him? Yeah, I don't think we need to be friends with eliders. Yeah, yeah, they're not pleasant. No. And I like that he never, ever became pleasant. I like that sometimes you reach out an arm of friendship to somebody and they spit on it and then continue being a jerk. That is truth in literature. Yeah, and Taryn was able to find some empathy for him and find some empathy for his situation, right. but they didn't have to be friends. And I think that's right. Like really he can think. be empathetic and, and see him as a full human being with insecurities and difficulties of his own. And Elider can still be a jerk. Right. Like he doesn't have to like him. He can just say, OK, I understand why you're a jerk, but let's move right. on. Right. So that was very true to life. I, for one, am really grateful, even though I I didn't read this book as a kid, so I can't exactly answer that question in the same way, but I'm happy that these books are now on my radar, and I kind of wish that I could have introduced 10, 11, 12-year-old Allie to them, because this is, I would have just eaten this up, and I'm happy to to know about them now, and um, to kind of have added them to my kidlet personal canon, so thank you for that. I'm so glad that, I'm so glad they've been it's been a good read for you because it, it really is. And I'm yeah. tempted now to read book three because I want to hear more about that like princess school situation oh, that you mentioned. Man. I really wish we could go into all of book three as well. So if you do read it, give me a call. We'll hash it out. Like this is, there's so much to unpack. Like I feel like at this point in my life, I almost enjoy not fully loving it as much because then I get to take it apart. Yeah. Well, this podcast only exists for that. So I'm glad most people (laughs) feel that way. I'm glad there's plenty to dissect in all of these books. And I'm so thankful that you came on to talk. Before we wrap up. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Are there any books that you're reading now or that you've read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I would recommend about a stack of books. But since we've been talking about the fantasy worlds and how things have changed since then, I thought maybe the Naomi Novik books, have you read these? I have not. She just put one out in March or April, I think called spinning silver. That's a, it's a follow on to her book uprooted. And if you liked fantasy as a kid, but you're kind of tired of it and don't want to deal with the baggage of it now, Mm. I very much recommend her world. It's like all of the great, really satisfying fantasy tropes, but 
her main character is, I am just not having this. Like, mm. this is bullshit. I'm not dealing with it. Like, no. She's she's a very no-nonsense, 2018-friendly woman character living in a fantasy world that is that, that manages to come up with a satisfying ending to that to that situation. So I've been, I found it very refreshing and uh, that's the next thing on my list. That sounds great. I will include a link to Naomi Novik as well as a link to the black cauldron in the show notes that anybody who wants to pick those up can just go right there and click the link. I'll also include links that you can find Erin online and stay in touch with her. I'm so grateful that you came to chat with us and I I have a feeling we're going to have more book talk in our future. I have had so much fun. Thank you so much. This is, this is like, my dream of the best podcast in the world. So amazing. Okay. Bye Aaron. Thanks. (laughs) Bye. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes, inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>